We are going to be in Titus chapter 1 tonight, and we're going to start in verse 4. Last week, we did a little bit of an introduction to the book, and then just covered the first three verses. And tonight, we're going to get into uh, the really the purpose statement of Paul as to why he wrote the book of Titus. And so, obviously, we're going to see that it was to set in order the churches, so much like First and Second Timothy, it's... Uh, these are often these three epistles are grouped in the category of pastoral epistles because they have a lot to say about the organization, the running of the church, um, what's important, what should be emphasized, who should be in leadership, what should, what are their qualifications, those kind of things. And so really in, in the book of Titus, we're going to see right out of the gate in chapter one that Paul begins discussing the qualifications of elders because this is one of Titus's primary functions on the island of Crete. So again, we're in Titus chapter 1. We're on page 11 of your workbook, and we're going to look a little bit more at Titus here in the first point, because in Titus 1.4, Paul writes to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we see see, uh, Paul write this to Titus, my true child. Now, whether Paul led Titus to the Lord or not, uh, is not certain, but he certainly discipled him into the trusted leader that he became in the Lord. Um, That word true there means legitimate or lawfully born. And so, uh, you know, at some level, we we don't know if if Paul was Titus's spiritual father, um, but he was clearly Titus's spiritual daddy, if you want to say it that way. He had spent a lot of time discipling him. We see the mention of Titus early on, um, shortly after the first missionary journey that he was at Antioch uh, with Paul and Barnabas, and they had actually brought him um, to Jerusalem with them. And so um, anyways, we see Titus kind of in the early early days of the church mentioned there. So he had been around Paul. And so again, he may have trusted Christ through Paul's ministry, but he may have just been discipled through Paul's ministry. Either way, he would have been uh, a true child of the Apostle Paul. And so it kind of just makes us think of the concept of discipleship in general, because as it's modeled and taught in scripture, it's it's really sorely uh, missing in our churches today. Uh, we should actively pursue, implement, and perfect this foundational pattern. This was you know, God's growth mechanism or his growth uh, strategy, if you will. It was always discipleship, you know, whether that's one-on-one, one-on-three, one-on-12, it, it just, in terms of the numbers, the numbers never, never really come into play. It's, it's, that's the process is, is creating, um, and duplicating and replicating, uh, believers who can walk with the Lord on their own and then also replicate themselves. So there's, there's a level of, of, of nurturing that goes into this. There's a level of equipping that goes into this. There's a process of time that goes into this. Um, and all of these things uh, come together, uh, to make up this concept of discipleship. And so we, what we see in this book is really kind of a, a model of discipleship in the sense that, that Paul had done this very thing with Titus. And now Titus was entrusted with a very difficult task because, he had been discipled and, and Paul was basically cutting him loose in the sense um, because he was he was walking with the Lord. So discipleship, when we look at the, the concept, it's the job of every mature believer. Uh, the mature should train new believers by on the job t- 
type of instruction and then help them get to the point of being able to train others also. You know, we're close to 2 Timothy, so let's just kind of flip there. Um, obviously, a very familiar verse uh, to all of us, but 2 Timothy um, 2 2 says, um, let's see, I lost my place. Here we go. 2 Timothy 2 2 and the things that you have heard from me. Among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so you, you've got this, this concept of not only a disciple, but somebody who can go on and disciple others. That's, that's what we're looking at in terms of disciple making. It's, it's making future disciple makers. And so in this epistle, as I mentioned, we see this process in action with Titus. Titus had been taught. Now he was sent forth to repeat that process in others on the island of Crete. So Paul and, and Titus were true disciple makers. And so, um, you know, what's, what's fascinating about that is, you know, uh, again, is, is as you sit here tonight, you have uh, a spiritual lineage and you, you are a believer in Jesus Christ today because of the whole process and concept of discipleship. And, you know, somebody, the person that led you to the Lord, Somebody else led them to the Lord and trained them how to do so. And all the way down, you know, the, the road so that, so that at some point, each one of us, as we sit here tonight, we, we should be able to trace our spiritual lineage back to one of the original, uh, disciples or one of the, the first century believers there on the day of Pentecost. And that's pretty exciting to see that that chain, uh, has reached you and has reached me. And so we want to obviously see that chain continue in each one of us as we grow spiritually as we learn what it means to depend on the Lord as we get equipped. So Titus 1 4 B, Titus my true child in a common faith. And in this word common, koinos in the Greek is often translated fellowship. So our faith is not to be lived out in a vacuum. While our faith is between us and God, it is meant to positively spill over and bless the entire body of Christ. You know, the, the emphasis there on common is, is shared, you know, it says fellowship, but we might use the word shared. It's, it's shared. It's, it's private. It's individual at some level, but it's also shared with other believers. And so when we talk about our faith, we talk about the body of, of doctrine and truth. This is shared by, by every believer. In fact, um, hold your finger there and go over to, uh, Jude three. Jude 3, the, the book right before Revelation, uh, one chapter, so it's verse 3. Uh, we use the same word here, uh, koinos. It says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. That's the same word here, koinos. Obviously, each one of us don't have different ways that we got saved, but individually we got saved when we personally put our faith in Jesus Christ. But it's a shared salvation. Uh, because it's a, it's a shared salvation plan. It's a shared savior. Um, and so in that way, it's, it's common. It's shared. It's, uh, we're in fellowship around salvation. So the same thing is true of the Christian faith. Now, this concept is especially difficult to appreciate in America due to the rugged individualism of Western culture. Similarly, in many cultures around the world, the concept of a faith lived out in community is often mi missing. In fact, when you talk to many Americans, what do they tell you? They say, you know, I was raised that we don't talk about, we, there's two things we don't talk about, right? Religion and politics. And so this idea of a, of a common shared faith sometimes is, is a little bit difficult for the Western 
mindset. You know, this is, uh, you know, religion is one of those things or spiritual talk is one of those things that uh, is private to many people in the sense that they don't view that as a shared uh, thing. And so in contrast to a, a selfish or exclusive philosophy, Paul exhorted believers to all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. We find that in 1 Corinthians 1, 10. And you know, it's, what's ironic about this is, is, you know, many of the heretics of the day, many, many cults and many Gnostic leaders, even in the first century, they were all individual. They were all ego driven. It was, it was, I'm going to hide what I have. You have to, you have to learn, you know, a special handshake or you have to come to me for special information and I'm going to withhold it and keep it from you. See, Christianity is, is designed to be shared. It's, it's designed to be participated in with one another. It's designed to be worked out and lived out amongst one another. And so just even this mention here, uh, in verse four of Titus one, that the Titus is a true son in our common faith. It's our shared faith. You know, heretics are usually ego driven lone wolves. These deceivers lurk in and around the body of Christ looking for a chance to strike. And then they look for the spiritually weak and they seek to, uh, they seek to teach them again, their secret truth. It's, it's not a we mentality. It's a me mentality. What's best for me? What's best for more power? What's best for more prestige? What's best for more wealth? And so some people just make their living, uh, criticizing others. And that's what many, uh, heretics do. That's what many, uh, divisive people in the body of Christ do. They, they, li- they live to criticize. They live to critique. They live to, uh, kingdom build and not, not the Lord's kingdom, future kingdom, but their own kingdom. They look to kind of build their own, uh, following. And so when Paul says that it's, it's very subtle, but I think it's a, it's a very interesting point. It's our common faith. And then he greets him with a, with a typical greeting, grace and peace. And he wishes uh, grace and peace for his son in the faith. And this is how Paul chose to open his letter to, uh, to Titus, uh, in, in the message in the people, uh, on the island of Crete. And so, um, this is how he chose to, to enter this and, and, or to open this letter. And you know, what's interesting is when you, when you, when we remind ourselves about who the Cretans were, um, you know, their gods, their Greek gods were immoral liars and cheats. And in their worship, the Cretans gave and gave to the gods, but the gods did not give back. They were always trying to appease the God through some level of giving. And the, the Cretans themselves were liars and cheats. Grace and peace were sadly lacking in this culture. You know, and that's so true, even, even in religious, you know, unsaved circles, the, the idea, uh, of religion is that it demands that you must give to God. Whereas, uh, in Christianity, it's all about how God gave to man. It's, it's completely, uh, different. You know, it's, it's a completely different direction. And so important to see that that's the distinction between religion. Religion is always going to require something of you to appease its God or its gods. Christianity is all about wanting you to know and to rely upon what God has given to you. And so you can kind of see the, the contrast there. So it's notable, uh, as Paul opens the letter this way, with a reminder of God's grace and peace, while we were still uh, enemies, his enemies, Christ died for us, making peace with God possible. So without 
us first giving to God, he freely, freely gave it to us. And this is why clarity of the gospel is so important. We're not, again, giving something to God. We're simply trusting in what God gave to us. And so it's just an, an important distinction in that we keep that order uh, in our mind, you know, just kind of locked in in our thinking. So grace and peace. We see that second word, peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our savior. And again, Paul highlighted here that uh, the fact that God is our father, uh, God is the father of fathers, the origin of all fatherhood, earthly human fathers only succeed to the extent that they follow God's model of fatherhood. And it's very important to notice that God is also referred to as our savior. Uh, in, in verse three, we saw that in verse three, God, our savior, um, but in, in verse uh, four, Jesus is referred to as our Savior. And again, it's just a reinforcement of where we left off last week, the reinforcement that Jesus is in every way God. Um, we talked about that before, but, but a lot of times in the scriptures, we see the word God and we automatically think fa- the Father. Um, and, and a lot of times it's used, it's, you know, he's referred to that way, just kind of singularly as God. But understand that, that in verse three, when we talk about God, our Savior, we're talking about God, the Son there. And so it's just, just kind of important, just uh, again, subtle reminder that Jesus is God. The Holy spirit is God. And, and the father is God. All three are God. Um, but they're, they're each individual, each have an individual personhood. So they're, they are not each other, but they are all three God. And so they're three persons are God. And so, um, again, if I could explain that better, I'd, I'd be a superstar because that's a very difficult concept to explain, you know, as you go through the scriptures, but that's, uh, you know, probably the best, best way that we can explain it. And so now we, we kind of move on into the purpose verse for the book. This is where we got the, the title for the study of Titus set in order. We get it right here from verse five. And so let's, let's read verse five as this kind of introduces us to a section on choosing elders. He said, um, in fact, let's, let's read through it. Uh, the whole thing, verse five through nine, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. As I commanded you, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination for a bishop must be, must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And so verse five, we've got this introduction to this qualification on elders. And we see this phrase for this reason. And, And again, Paul had left Titus in Crete so that he could serve as an advisor and an establisher of the churches. He was to lead, but he was not to take over. Just like Timothy, Titus was an evangelist. And so let's observe some of his responsibilities. And, and so here we, here we have, it's, this is the reason that Paul wrote the letter. This is exactly the reason, as we see here, uh, Titus is going to serve as an advisor and as, and as a, a further establisher of the churches there on the island of Crete. And, and notice Paul says, for this reason, I left you. It implies that Paul was with him at some point uh, in this ministry at Crete and that Paul had gone away and left Titus there. But given the culture of Crete, 
the fact that Paul left Titus alone, we conclude that Paul had confidence in Titus and acknowledged his spiritual authority as an evangelist to the churches. And and we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, but just to kind of reemphasize, this was a very difficult assignment. This was not an easy assignment for Titus. Um, The people on Crete, on the island of Crete, were known for being ruthless and cunning. They were known for their shipbuilding industry, which which also attracted pirates uh, in and around the island. There were mercenaries of all kinds on the island, you know, people willing to hire themselves out. Uh, for, for any type of uh, financial gain. Uh, and then we know, um, honestly, that this assignment was going to be temporary. Uh, we knew this was not designed to be a permanent assignment for Titus. And how do we know that? Well, go jump with me ahead to Titus 3.12, because we see that Paul was, was eventually going to send a replacement uh, for Titus so that Titus could leave Crete and then rejoin Paul. So this is going to be a temporary assignment. He was going to establish um, leaders in each church. We'll see exactly more specifically what he's going to do. But but part of the reason he was going to establish these churches through uh, the, uh, installing or appointing uh, new leaders. And so in verse 12, he says, when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, uh, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. And so you see Paul, it, Paul views Titus's assignment here on Crete as a temporary assignment. He wants him to come join him. Um, if Tychicus sounds familiar, it should. He's the one who delivered uh, the book of Philemon and also the book of Colossians uh, for the Apostle Paul during his Roman imprisonment. And so we see his name mentioned there uh, again. Now, uh, he's, he goes on to say in verse 5 uh, that you would set in order what remains. And so Paul gave Titus the responsibility of beginning the process of appointing elders in every city. And, um, you know, the idea here would set in order. It has the idea of keep putting things in their proper position. That, that's kind of what the word means. Put things in its proper position. And, you know, things have to be in their proper position for, for things to grow, you know, um, safely and, and healthy and strongly. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're building uh, a building, you know, there's, there's a certain order that you have to do things in. Otherwise, it destroys the stability of the construction project. And so uh, this, the, the case is also true in the church. And so this is what Titus was, uh, his role was, was to go in, set in order, put things in their proper place so that when they started building, uh, there would be a long-term building project there, that it wouldn't just completely fall apart when he left. Some of those things that he was going to be involved in, we'll see specifically here in this verse, is that he was to appoint sound leadership. And that's why he talks about appointing elders. We'll get into that here in more detail. But he also, throughout the epistle, gives them instruction on how to respond to false teaching. False teaching abounded everywhere, not only on Crete, but everywhere in the Roman Empire. And so that was very important to understand how do you handle that as a church, how do you handle that as an individual believer? And so Titus was setting those kind of things in order as well. And then what we're going to see is one of the main emphasis in the book of Titus was for each individual believer to be thinking um, about being available to the Lord for good works, for exercise, the exercise of good works. Now, again, good works don't save. They don't get you born into the family. That's not what we're talking about at all. But for believers who have been born again, by putting their faith in Jesus Christ, God has a good works 
program designed for them. And he wants believers to walk in those good works because they glorify himself. They, they're able to bear fruit that glorifies God. And that's what God is, is, is interested in. And so Titus is setting in order all these things so that this church would grow healthy, uh, would function biblically. And this is kind of what his whole job is to do. And so we see that again uh, in verse five, it mentions appointing elders in every city as I directed you. And so his assignment was to recognize men of a certain character and appoint them as elders. And you know, this in and of itself was not an easy task. This is a very difficult task. You remember the instruction to, to Timothy in first Timothy 5.22, Paul um, says this, he says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. You know, there's this there's this tendency in churches to uh, appoint people hastily. You know, they 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 kind of you know you look at a guy and you think, oh, he he talks really quietly. He seems like a really sweet guy, nice guy, and you know maybe he can be an elder. And 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 you don't realize that he's a complete tyrant at home. You don't realize that he's at odds with three or four people in the church already because of his own carnality. And all you've seen is, is the character that he's presented to you. And, and I can just imagine Titus not knowing, uh, you know, everybody in every city well, trying to, you know, look to the Lord for wisdom on who to appoint. And so you've got this really good list um, that Paul puts together for Titus here. And obviously it's written for our own um, use as well in the, in the present day. But understand how tough this is and understand that there's a process of time when you're trying to observe and recognize someone's character. And so Titus had a tough job, you know, not only dealing with difficult people culturally, but but also probably carnal believers that 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 are saved, that have come out of that culture, that that are still growing up and still struggling uh, with with sin and an approach to their life and, and manipulation and dishonesty. He's dealing with all this, and then at the same time, he's trying to sort through and and understand who are the who are the spiritual uh, the spiritually mature amongst this group that I can appoint. So he had a very difficult uh, job, and um, we know that this this appointment of elders is a pattern that was intended to be continued. The Elders chosen by Titus would then be the ones to choose the next generation of elders. Again, New Testament churches are to be managed by elders who are appointed to service, not voted in. You know, many people have different, many churches have different uh, structures and approaches. And it's not that, you know, it's not that you couldn't have a church that that had congregational vote. Uh, It's just that this is probably one of those areas that, you know, I would highly discourage allowing the church to congregationally vote on who their leaders are going to be. That this is something that uh, the present elder group should be involved in appointing, um, taking input from the body, but but appointing them themselves. And so, obviously, that's that's what we practice here at Grace. This is kind of our understanding of of the biblical way uh, to do that. Now, Paul told Titus to appoint elders. Notice it's it's plural. You know, go back to verse five. It's it's elders plural in every city. Uh, the biblical model observed and taught in the New Testament is a plurality of elders, all working in harmony to give direction to the church body. And um, you know, I think that's an important point. You know, uh, many churches get caught 
you know, maybe hiring a pastor. And then the pastor is kind of the, the main leader. Uh, he, he tends to, in those situations, many, many people in those situations become authoritative um, and, and kind of, you know, king of the castle kind of mentality. And, and I think, you know, the, the plurality of, of elders, the plurality of spiritually mature men, um, holding one another accountable, challenging one another's thinkings, providing insight into situation based on different backgrounds and skill sets and giftings. It's just, it's all designed to provide a, a healthy, healthy church family environment. You know, um, Homer, who, who lived in the ninth century, referred to Crete as an island of a hundred cities. You know, in Titus here, he's, he's told that he is to appoint elders in every city. So, you know, we don't know if there was a church, uh, in every city, but, but there are definitely multiple churches, multiple local churches. And, and Titus was, uh, was tasked with going in and appointing leaders in every city. And so we see the value again of locality of, of leaders in every locale, leading their own individual local churches. And so again, this is kind of where we see this. And, and, and not only that, but in Philippians 1, 1 is, as Paul writes to the, the church of Philippi in Macedonia, uh, he, he says this in verse one, Paul and Timothy bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And notice there's a plurality, both of those offices, bishops is just another term for elders. And so anyways, we see this, this plurality, we see this locality of elders, um, as we study throughout the new Testament, letter C in practice, many churches today have a plurality of elders called elder boards, but then in function, oftentimes, uh, these churches are run by one controlling pastor or elder. And this is not the biblical model observed in acts and taught in the epistles. And, um, you remember, you probably remember his name. If you've ever uh, heard it, you probably won't forget it. But in third, uh, John, you've got Diotrephes and Diotrephes was a leader, uh, probably in the church of Ephesus. If, if we're right in assuming that John first, second, and third John were, were written to the church at Ephesus. Uh, but in verse nine of third John, it, it, it says and I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them does not receive us. And so what you see is that, is that some leader in the church by the name of Diotrephes was no longer interested in this plurality. He was kind of taking charge as, as John may have been gone. He was kind of loving the preeminence, trying to take authority, trying to control. And so he says that he doesn't receive us. Um, verse 10, therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does prating against us with malicious words and not content with that. He himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to putting them out of the church. And so you see what Diotrephes was doing is not only was he not receiving other believers, but he, if anyone else was doing it and he found out he was kicking those people out of the church. And so, um, so this happens sometimes where a controlling pastor may come uh, may come in or may be there and just take o- try to take over the plurality and there's safety. Um, you know, you hear that phrase, there's safety in numbers. Well, it's true in, in the leadership of local churches as well. And so again, we just see this as the biblical model described here. Now, while the terms pastor and overseer highlight the function of an elder, 
When found in Acts in the epistles, the terms elder, overseer, pastor, when used as a noun, and bishop all refer to the same office. Now, we went over this in much more detail in the book of 1 Timothy, but let's really quickly hold your place there and go to Acts chapter 20 uh, as Paul uh, calls for the Ephesian elders. Uh, it'll tell us, and then notice notice the different um, terms that he uses here, all in one passage to describe the same group of men. So again, it shows us that, that these are all synonymous, referring to the same office. But Acts uh, 2017, uh, from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And so there in verse 17, we've got elders. It's the Greek word presbyteros um, is used there. And then jump down to verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. It says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Again, he's still talking to the elders among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's a, another word that's used often. It's the Greek word episkopos, um, which, which again is synonymous for an elder. And then notice uh, to, he's made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Now that's the verb form of the word pastor. It's, it's poimano, uh, which is to, is to shepherd. And so you, you'll see that, that oftentimes the terms elder, overseer, bishop, which is really a translation, typically the same word, uh, elder, presbyteros, and then pastor, um, are all synonymous and, and typically refer to the same office. Now, Paul, gave a list of 20 qualifications that we're going to see here required for eldership in the local church. Now, it's it's not an impossible list. These qualities are attainable through a consistent walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, we have that verse there, John 15. Remember, John 15 says, with Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. And, and just the opposite is true. When we abide in Jesus Christ, and when we talk about somebody who's spiritually mature, it's it's that they are in, they have learned to be in fellowship more consistently over a process of time, and so those types of people, you know, just the opposite of John fifteen five is true. You know, without Jesus Christ, you can do nothing, but with Jesus Christ, walking in fellowship with Him, um, the life of Jesus Christ can be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so we can do everything in that sense. And there's, there can be these, um, you know, not perfect. We're going to see, but there's a, there's a consistent manifestation of these character qualities that we're going to look at in somebody who is spiritually mature. Now it's important to, to keep in mind that we're all still broken, sinful people. Uh, not one of us is without flaw. In fact, first John one, eight through 10 says, if we if we say we don't sin, if we say that we've stopped sinning, um, we're self-deceived liar. That's that that's not true. We're we're going to sin. We we have a sin nature or indwelling sin, the power of sin indwelling us, um, and we will until our glorification. And so there are going to be times where we present ourselves to sin, uh, and we're going to think sinful thoughts. We're going to commit sinful acts. We're going to say sinful things. That's uh, unfortunately, I wish. I wish, you know, our glorification happened at the time of our justification. That'd be awesome. But, um, you know, it doesn't do that way. So it's not, we're not talking about sinless uh, perfection for an elder, but we're talking about a consistency of someone who's walking by means of the spirit. Um, And so nonetheless, when we look at the list, it serves as a checklist to discern who qualifies or 
who does not qualify to serve in the vital role of mentoring, guiding, teaching, equipping, and shepherd shepherding the flock. Again, it's we're looking at a manner of life. We're looking at a consistency of life, not a perfection of life, but a consistency uh, of life. One of the things that we mentioned in Timothy, but I think it's wise to mention again, all the verbs in this section are present tense. <coughs> what that tells us is they, they are to be used to discern a candidate's present condition, not to judge his past life. Um, also, you might, you might add a note here. It doesn't guarantee f- his future qualification for office. In other words, this is not a, a life appointment. You know, uh, a man uh, may qualify today. He wouldn't have qualified five years ago. But he's, but he's growing spiritually. He's now walking with the Lord. Um, he may not have qualified 20 years ago, but today he's growing spiritually. He's walking with the Lord. But it got, doesn't guarantee that in five years from now, he's still going to be growing spiritually and walking with the Lord. Many people check out spiritually. And we, we understand that spiritual life is lived in moment-by-moment moment dependence upon the Lord. So if you're not doing that one minute from now, or five years from now, or 10 years from now, and that's a that becomes a manner of life where you're not walking with the Lord, then that person would no longer be qualified to be an elder. So we're looking at these qualifications in the present tense, whenever that present tense is. And that's what we're talking about here. So if any point an elder no longer meets these requirements, he should willingly resign from service. In fact, one of the one of the biggest qualifications, I, I think, it's it's subtle. It's in First Timothy three one, but it says this is a faithful saying: If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. That that's kind of primary point number one. If if there's a man who's who's faithfully served as an elder, and let's say he's spiritually qualified and he's done he's done so for ten years, fifteen years. But he just realizes that in a season in his life, he just he no longer has a desire to do it. He should resign from that service, and it's and it's not a uh, it's you know he shouldn't hang his head about that. It's it's okay. It's there's certain seasons, so that might be something where he no longer qualifies, but he he does qualify spiritually. But in terms of his desire, it's just not there. He he doesn't desire to be involved in those in those high level decisions, you know, in the church and. And in responding to problems as they come up, he just, he kind of is at a season where he doesn't want to do that. Um, and that's okay. So he wouldn't meet the requirements based on that. Um, but also as, as, uh, again, a man may be qualified, may have been qualified five years ago, but, but due to circumstances, he's no longer walking with the Lord. Then he's no longer qualified. He should willingly resign from service. And so if he becomes qualified, uh, disqualified according to the requirements of Titus 1 uh, and 1 Timothy 3, but does not recognize this fact, the instructions of 1 Timothy 5 concerning elders should be carefully followed. He may have to be removed in this process. And let's, let's look really quickly at 1 Timothy 5 uh, verses uh, 19 and 20. Uh, and this is just kind of a, a basic approach, which is, Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. And, and I, and you know, it's interesting because elders and leaders, um, in, in some sense should be given the benefit of the doubt. When there's, when there's more witnesses that are attesting to the same thing, then, then the situation needs to be, uh, addressed. And that's kind of what we see here. It's a little, a little bit of a safeguard, uh, to prevent like, you know, what, 
what you saw in history, like at the Salem witch trials, that if anybody accused anybody, man, they were guilty until proven innocent. This is kind of this is kind of a, um, a a measured approach to to dealing with um, poor behavior or or carnality in an elder. This is kind of a measured approach, but says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. And then verse 20, those who are sinning, if you find out that it's true, rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. And, and clearly, if there's a rebuke of that elder, that person in leadership, and they don't respond and they continue down the path that they've been rebuked for, then I think that would, would qualify them to be removed from office. And, um, uh, I, I may show a video here if I, if we got time at the end, it's just kind of a, it's a good illustration of, uh, of a guy, you know, uh, you know, a video, you know, cell phone videos are everywhere, right? So people, people are caught maybe when they don't think so, but there was a video of a pastor who, who really just lost it on a Sunday morning and it, and, you know, begs to begs the question, you know, should, if there was an elder, board in that church, should they have corrected him, come back and corrected him publicly? I don't think they, they did because I don't think the structure of that church was was as such. But I'll show that video here um, in a second once we finish these points. So these 20 qualifications are the mark of a mature believer. So again, even those who don't desire to be elders should still seek after these qualities because we should all be desiring to grow spiritually and to be more consistent. And this is this is what spiritual maturity is going to look like, these qualifications. Let me, I'm going to um, stop sharing my PowerPoint for a second, and then I'm going to come back uh, to it. Let me just show you this video. I thought, uh, again, it's just kind of a, uh, it's an illustrative video. Uh, I thought, you know, it might be, it's going to be mildly entertaining, but it's going to be, it's going to be sad too uh, for you to see. So let me just play it. It's about a five minute video to just kind of illustrate how someone may have been qualified to be an elder, but may not, may not be today. Maybe they were when they initially set on, but, but in this kind of case, clearly they're, they're not. I'm going to share the sound with you. That gives you a flavor of what I'm talking about or provides an example, you know, the obviously a passionate guy, but, 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 uh, you know, bitterness and, and abusiveness, you know, coming, coming through there in that rant, um, you know, on a Sunday morning, you know, on a Sunday morning in public. And so, um, just, just kind of wanted to show you just, just an example of maybe a, a leader that, um, you know, maybe had a bad day, but at the same time that looked like that had been building up and, um, that needed to be addressed, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, with the Lord, uh, some of those things needed to, to be addressed and you can see how someone's character could begin to uh to taper off if they're not attentive to those kind of things all right let me pull back up the the powerpoint and we'll keep going here we're going to look at the qualifications for elders now we're just going to look at a few this evening and then we'll continue uh obviously the study next week but uh in verse six we see the the very first uh qualification is that this man an elder must be of good reputation uh, the New King James says, if a man is blameless, the NASB is, which is what we've got with the curriculum says, namely, if any man is above reproach and above reproach means blameless or innocent. Uh, it means specifically that a potential elder must be currently free from any accusation, either by church members or from those outside the church. And so the idea is, is not only merely is he unaccusable, but also that he that he's free from any legal charges. 
Uh, so that's very important to, to understand. And this would have been especially relevant on the island of Crete. You know, if you had a, a guy and he's growing spiritually, but he's still got some issues out in the community, you know, that, that just wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily reflect well on the local church. And so there's, there's some, you know, some very, some, this is an easy measurable for Titus in, in some ways, you know, uh, as he goes around and he's looking for these types of men that are above reproach. They're not, they're, you know, they're unaccusable. There's no legal charges, you know, pending against them. They, they're not at odds with half the church, etc. Um, so this is kind of qualification number one. Qualification number two is a right marital status. Titus 1.6b says he's the husband of one wife. And this, this phrase in particular has given the church a, a great deal of difficulty because there's lots of different ways to take this. And, and those that were in the First Timothy study, I think we spent an entire study, uh, an entire evening looking at this, this phrase, uh, not only used here in Titus 1.6, but also used in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, the husband of one wife, and kind of what what this phrase meant. So just kind of in summary, uh, the, the Titus curriculum here gives a quick summary. Um, some people interpret this phrase to mean that an elder candidate must have only ever been married to one wife. This would mean that anyone who had ever had a divorce, which would be before or after salvation, would without exception, be disqualified from service. And this is one interpretation. You know, a variation of this interpretation would say that, well, if, if, this, per, if this man got divorced before he was saved, um, but he's been married to the same woman after he got saved, then, that's, then he qualified. He would be qualified. And they would say, basically, if a believer was a believer and he got divorced after he became a believer, then he would always remain unqualified to be an, be an elder based on this uh, particular instruction. Um, and so, however, the, the present tense structure in this passage suggests that it's referring to the quality of the man in the sense of being a one woman kind of guy. It doesn't say anything about what he did in the past. It's talking about whether or not he is presently faithful to his wife. And, and to me, this is, this is a very key argument for this interpretation because and, and it's why observing the text is so important when we study the Bible, because if if past behavior was considered in, in all of these qualifications, then then no one would ever qualify to be an elder. Because you, you would go back into the past of especially these men in Crete, and and none of them were anything that was described here. I mean, culturally speaking, I think we can safely say that. Um, but then on fl- on the flip side, if everything else represents present character, what in the what in the text here would indicate that this one qualification would cause us to go back in time and and consider the past history? So so there's some arguments there. Uh, for this, this being, what is he right now? What is he presently? And, um, you know, I think even having some understanding of the culture is helpful here, both, both in Ephesus and in Crete, where both of these elder qualifications were written, because according to Cretan culture, it was entirely legitimate to visit prostitutes. The thinking was that wives were for bearing children and mistresses were for personal enjoyment. And so Paul was therefore emphasizing the appointment of only those type of men who clearly lived contrary to the local culture. This would have caused them to have stood out, to be devoted to to one woman, which is clearly a biblical concept there. 
Um, it would have caused them to stand out. This would have been a, uh, a spiritually minded man would have, would have adopted to the biblical teaching on this. And so Paul did not, again, question God's amazing ability to make a wonderful elder out of someone who had been weak and sinful. The third qualification we see in, in verse 6 uh, is, is having faithful kids. Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. The phrase having children who believe can legitimately be translated as having faithful children. It's it. The word there is, is uh, pistos, which um, if you were in Sunday school with, with Carl a few weeks ago when he was looking through uh, the fruit of the spirit, um, that's, um, that's what you find uh, there as well. Actually, I, actually, it's the opposite. I think you find pistos there, which is more faith. Pistos is more faithful. Um, when we look in the fruit of the spirit, it's actually the, it's actually the Greek word faith. And, and Carl did a good job of explaining how that, how that is a fruit of the spirit, but faithful children, pistos, that's why it's translated having children who believe, but it's, it, it could be probably better translated faithful children. And it, and it seems to fit the context better considering the fact that he added the phrase, not accused of dissipation, which is uncontrollably wild living or rebellion. It just seems that, that, that faithful concept seems to fit the context a little bit better. So Paul was focused on the children's obedience to their father and on their respectfulness, not on whether or not they were saved. Uh, the man who was going to lead the church needed, first of all, to be a leader in his own family, regardless of their spiritual condition. You know, and one of the things that that we all need to understand is that children have a mind of their own. They may they make decisions. They they have their own volition, and so it's quite possible that it, that an elder in the church, a, a saved man growing spiritually, has a child that that never trusts in Christ, and it's and it's not that that man has failed. Uh, in a sense, and now he may have failed. Maybe he didn't share the gospel. Maybe he didn't model things clearly. But I'm talking about a spiritually mature guy who walks with the Lord, who who enjoys Jesus Christ, who speaks about Him to his children. Maybe makes an effort to teach his children. But you've got you've got certain kids that are, I mean, all kids are choice makers. So they they've got to make the decision themselves. And and what we're focused on here, or what Paul is focused on here, is not whether or not they're saved, but whether or not they they obey Dad. Whether or not they respect the rules of the house, if if the father is is leading his home in such a way that it's it's healthy, it's respectful, it's orderly, that's what Paul is talking about here. Again, you can't ensure that your children will be saved, but you can ensure that they're not wild and uncontrolled while living under your roof. The first and primary responsibility of any elder is his family, and so if he's failing in that capacity, he does not qualify. Uh, as a leader or an elder in the church. Again, these these qualifications, um, you know, if you've got a child that's exhibiting these kind of qualities, it, it may indicate a lack of leadership in the home. And so as, as one is trying to appoint an elder, they, this is one of those, you know, measuring sticks. Okay, how 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 is the home run? Is it orderly? Do they have wild and uncontrolled children? And so it's just kind of a, a real measurable, insightful way that Paul gives uh, to Titus to, to recognize the spiritual maturity of a man under consideration uh, as an elder. And then the fourth description, we'll stop here tonight uh, in the first part of verse seven. Uh, it says, for a bishop... Uh, 
must be blameless. And we want to kind of pick up on this phrase overseer. The the bishop it's translated bishop in New King James. Uh, it's it's translated overseer uh, in the New American Standard. But the word overseer is sometimes translated bishop. Bishops and overseers um, are different words in English, but in Greek they are the same word. It's the Greek word episkopos. Uh, you can probably see an English word there, episcopal. That's where the Episcopal Church gets their name. Uh, but it's episkopos, meaning one who watches over, protects, and leads. And as already mentioned, bishops or overseers. Episcopos in this verse refers to the same office as elders, presbyteros in verse 5. And again, we looked at that earlier. The terms are interchangeable in Acts 20. And so when we talk about elders... Um, they need to provide oversight of a local church by caring for, protecting from false teachers, leading and equipping believers. And so we believe that this, this should be a very proactive and intentional mindset of care and investment by, by any elder in the church. And oftentimes in appointing a new elder, this, these are qualifications that are recognized. In other words, these, these are people who are already functioning maybe according to these character qualities without having the office. They, they function first and then they're recognized as, as functioning in these ways and thus the appointment comes. We're going to stop there tonight. Thank you all for tuning in tonight. Really appreciate your presence here. Let me close this with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll shut this study down. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this insight that we get into the book of Titus and your heart uh, in terms of desiring to see your churches be orderly, to be established so that we can grow in a healthy manner. We're, we're grateful what you have been able to, to do in our own local church over the past 39 years now. Lord, we just pray that each day that, that you would continue to lead the current group of elders, you'd continue to lead the current group of deacons so that we might lead, effectively lead the flock that you've entrusted our care with great care and great interest and great insight. And so Lord, we, we stand in need of, of you. We're dependent upon you to do so. We want to be the type of men as, as we lead the church that, that others are willing to come alongside of and, and serve with. I pray that you'd create that in each one of our leaders. We pray that you would just make us one in mind and purpose as a church body. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.